Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I am neither French nor have I been or will ever be part of a revolution. However, it was in 1859 that Charles Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities. And I got to tell you something. It's Thursday as we're speaking. Yesterday, it was the best of times. Well, in fact, today, it is the worst of times. Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, how are you guys today? Dan, how are you? I'm doing okay. Just a little programming note here. I have the vid for the second time in five months here. So I'm hiding out, guys. I'm uh, locked down again. Just to keep the French name going, part de. I thought you were going to go with Pepe Le Pew as far as the market when you're going. Not a tale of two cities, but certainly a tale of two days, that's for sure. Well, it's certainly Pepe Le Pew. And I got to tell you something. On Fast Money Tuesday night, Mel asked me what I thought would happen in terms of Fed on Wednesday. And I said, look, I can't believe, Danny, they could be much more hawkish than they've been. So by that logic, I thought that we'd see a relief rally in the market. And I said, I thought when the market closed that day, I think at 4170-ish, I thought we'd get up to 4250. We actually got to 4300. And I thought that would be it. Well, that proved to be somewhat prescient. I mean, I'm wrong all the time, but that one worked out. And here we are on this Thursday, obviously giving it all back and then some. But you said something, I want to say now it was a month, month and a half ago. Time sort of stands still for me and I lose track of it. But you said you went from being bearish to being scared. And I want you to amplify on that, if you may, because. Everything that you've been talking about, we're going to talk about stagflation. All these things are coming to fruition right before our very eyes. Yeah, I just don't think that there's buy points right now. I mean, there's certainly buy points with stocks, but it is scary right now because when you peel this thing back, we've been living in this Fed-induced monetary world now for 13 years, and it's clearly over. Not only is it over, it's moving back the other direction. And so when you peel that back and the tide goes out, you're left with owning companies that have fundamentals. Well, if you have a lot of debt on your balance sheet and or you don't make money, one of the two, your stock's in trouble right now. You're vulnerable. And that's why you're seeing these dividend paying companies, blue chips start to rise to the top, not because they pay dividends relative to where the 10 year yield is, but because they pay dividends, it means they have solid balance sheets. It means they have solid businesses. And now I just feel like we're turning into this risk averse world. And what's really scary to me is there are still many stocks that I think have a long way to fall. 
And the scary part is we've already seen a tremendous amount, as Dan has pointed out time and time again, the general's falling and all these other stocks, which you guys I know do a lot more granular work down 70 to 80% in some cases. So we've been in a bear market for some time, just not by the definition of how we call a bear market. I think today's price action that followed yesterday's action is the most negative day, obviously where the S&P is down over 3%, it's a negative day and it will be one of the worst days of the year. But to me, this sends the ultimate signal. My biggest fear of the scare has been stagflation, as you guys know. And today was the biggest quarterly drop in labor productivity since 1947. And that was paired with the fastest year-over-year increase in unit labor costs since 1982. You can't have a worse setup right now. Again, I try not to be overly bearish. I just try to tell it like it is. And I'm definitely scared for what lies ahead, for myself included. Danny, that's really important. I mean, you just brought up something that is extraordinary in terms of playing out the way you thought it would play out last summer. And now it's happening right before our very eyes. But it's important to sort of amplify those points because as many tools as this Federal Reserve has and central banks have, and they can do all these great things, the one thing they can't combat is exactly what you just outlined today because they push one lever, it makes one side worse, and then they go to the other side to try to combat that, it makes the other side worse, and they wind up on this seesaw that they're not going to get off of. Listen, during the past 80 years, the Fed has never lowered inflation as much as they're setting out to do here, 4%, let's say, without a recession. It has never happened. And so credit can't get any better than it has been, both on the corporate and consumer basis, right? It can't get any better. Rates, obviously, they could trickle back lower, but I think we've seen, the, obviously, the low in rates. Mortgage rates here are skyrocketing. And the worst part about it is, guy, is that oil is now breaching again. We're up to, I think, $110 on West Texas. And look at natural gas today. So you have all these things that affect the everyday consumer. Forget about the everyday stock market investor. And to me, that's scary. Yeah, well, the stock market today feels like a panic. Looking at my fact set screen, and I have a few hundred stocks up in different sectors, and there's basically nothing green other than Elon Musk's Twitter that I can see here. And I'm seeing dozens of stocks that are down between 5 and 15%. And all of those stocks are, for the most part, already down on the year, much more than the broad indices. Okay, so some of those were the preceding weakness. And Danny, you just mentioned the generals. Here's one of the most out of whack things I'm looking at right now. Apple, the largest market cap company in the world, is down 6.3% on the day. You know how much is down on the year? 6.39%. Just think about that. That hasn't even broken yet. Microsoft is only down 13.5% on the year. It's down 5%. You put them together, you have $5 trillion in market cap, which is, for the most part, massively outperforming the NASDAQ. And you look at these other stocks that are down 50, 60, 70% from their highs, many down 30, 40, 50% on the year, down 10, 11, 12% today. This is not over, people. Depending upon your time horizon, you can almost throw a dart at almost any stock on your board, and it's going to be much lower at some point in a month or two. And Danny, what is the thing, if it wasn't what the Fed chair pal said in his presser yesterday, what is the thing that could rip this market the way it ripped in March from those lows on March 15th to its highs nearly at 4,800 in the S&P 500? It's hard for me to see that. And I just want to go back to yesterday prior to the press conference, after the Fed came out with the report, hey, we did 50, the dollar weakened actually before Powell started speaking. So I figured there was probably a rally coming. Guy and I were on breaking even on Tuesday and we said it's hard to get more hawkish coming in. Then I'm in the kitchen and I hear 
we're going 50, not 75. And the next I think to myself, okay, now I'm going to go look at the market. It's probably rallying. And it did. It took off on itself. But then you started to listen to the reality. Quantitative tightening is here. While they're not going to be actively selling mortgage-backed treasuries, they're going to let these things unwind to the tune of 30 billion in treasuries a month for the next three months and 17 and a half billion mortgage-backed securities starting in June. And then they're ramping it up to 60 and 35, so 95 billion. Yes, it will take a very long time to unwind 9 trillion. But again, the action we're seeing today in treasuries, to me, the 10-year yields moving higher like they are today. Inflation, for the most part, the stuff that's come out in the last few weeks, I could argue, has been a little bit mixed. I would actually argue that maybe inflation actually will come down because of demand destruction. But today, I believe today's sell-off is Fed no longer has your back. Yesterday was your last chance to get out. I really feel that way. But again, there will be stuff to buy. We just had a really good conversation with Rosie, David Rosenberg. I'm sorry you couldn't make it there, Danny Boy. And he actually said that is the one thing looking out mid-year into the fall that would make him incrementally less bearish is just inflation coming down meaningfully. One of the things that I think it's really important to hit on here as we've gotten through the bulk of S&P 500 earnings, and we saw, again, back to Microsoft and Apple, pretty good. We saw a great report out of Tesla. We throw Tesla in there not to get you exercised, Danny, but it is one of the largest market cap companies right now. Is it? Yeah, it is. Okay, just curious. It's $850 billion. But if we were to see things materially change over the next couple months or so, we're going to get big guide downs from them. And it's important to notice that it wasn't just companies like Netflix that had huge drops or whatever. Amazon was down 15% the day after its earnings, and it just keeps going lower. Microsoft and Apple are the next two to drop. So Danny, my question here for you, buddy, is that we are all in agreement that strategists who are predicting 8% year-over-year EPS growth for the S&P 500, who have a 17 multiple on that, I don't know, $223, $224, they're whistling past the graveyard. That's not happening. So when do we get the realization of strategists taking down those S&P earnings estimates and then saying, okay, if we overshot to the upside on the multiple, we were willing to pay for those earnings because everything was great. Now in this inflationary environment with slowing growth, what are you going to pay for it now? Does it overshoot to the downside? I guess it's what causes inflation to come down. Is it demand destruction? If that's what it is, then that's, uh, as our friend Jim likes to say, which is brew, because that would mean by definition, numbers are probably coming down and the consumer is being very, very impacted by it. So that's one. Strategists will always be late to do this. But Dan, I do think S&P numbers are too high. I think now from an affordability perspective, credit condition perspective, all those indicators that City has, all those things you're going to see these are going to start to come in. And I think then by definition, we're going to lower GDP assumptions. And we're now we're running the risk. Just keep this in mind. Remember, the comps that we're going up against year over year are extremely difficult. You think about, we talked about this before, COVID through most of 2020. 2021 was a very, very big rebound. 2022 over 21 is going to look weaker. It's just going to look weaker. So I've always said on Tesla, granted, been wrong on the stock price for some time. I've always said, you'll know that the market's corrected when that last general goes. That is the king of the memes. That's everything. And these other consumer stocks that we talked about, these defensive names are the Kellogg's, the Johnson & Johnson. The funny thing is, the reason those stocks are doing well is they're not memeable. You can't make anything up. They're very consistent. We talked about the home builders like a month ago when they were getting hit. They made sense. They're rational. So there's certain pockets of the market that are rational, but until parts of the market which are not rational, correct, I know we're not there yet. Long-winded answer, numbers are coming down. S&P targets are coming down. They just are. Maybe we'll get a bottom out here in the next three to four months and people will start looking towards 23 and what that looks like. And we can come out of a trough. I just think that's wishful thinking. 
I ask you both to indulge me for a second. In the early 90s, a casino opened up in Connecticut. It was called Foxwoods. And Foxwoods would send a limousine down for us from time to time. So we'd go up and play craps. And on this particular evening, we were playing, we were betting rather aggressively. And the box man said something to the effect of, wow, you guys are really sending it in. And I turned to him and I said, yeah, my friend Joe has brass balls. And he said, oh, that's very attractive. Well, I bring that up because, Danny, not only do you have brass balls, but apparently you have a crystal ball as well. We talked about your stagflation call. It was Danny Moses that came to us with his dogs of the Dow. And if you look at some of these names, Danny, once again, you proved to be prescient. A word I can't spell. I know there's a C in it, but you clearly are. I mean, I just think if you got to run and hide somewhere in the market and you want to keep money in the market, and I'm pressed all the time being tagged as a pessimist and he's a bear and he's... I really like to think of myself as a realist. And within that, there's stuff you can own. And let me just say, while you want to praise me, that's fine. But I was long cannabis stocks, right? And for those people out there that I know, listen, that hasn't been a great sector. It's retail dominated. It's getting thrown out like everything else right now. I get it. Hang in there. So I just want to mention that as well, because I did mention that was a place to hide. But I just think quality is going to rise to the top. And the longer that this goes on, we got to squeeze out some of these names that are left. And again, I feel horrible for the investors that are out there that are being thrown into this game and chasing and selling at lows and buying back on the highs. Like I've mentioned before with the AMCs and the GameStops, yes, they're small market caps. Yes, they're not relevant to the overall, maybe S&P 500, but they are relevant to the health of the retail investor and that's who's getting dinged. And I want to throw Bitcoin in there right now because I'll keep harping on this again, hated it at 2,000, 10,000, 20,000, really hated it at 60,000. But to me, it's a cues on steroids right now. And so people need to realize that as well. It is not proven to be a store of value. It's not proven to be an inflation hedge. Dan, opine on that for a second, because you're way more in tune than I am with what's going on in the crypto. You know, Guy and I have had the benefit of talking to Michael Saylor, CEO, founder of MicroStrategy. He's obviously levered that company. He sold stock. He sold converts. He sold debt. He's actually borrowed against the Bitcoin that he's bought because he has a view of the world and he's using the vehicle in which he can do to buy it. But he's bought a ton of it. As of this taping, Dan, I believe it's 129,450 Bitcoin BTC on the MicroStrategies balance sheet. Right. And I guess the point is, is there's very few people who make the case better than he does of why you should be buying it. I just, again, you know, since I've been following it, every single pillar of the bull case for it has kind of gone the way of the dodo. But again, I got no skin in the game here. I find it all a bit interesting. I think we've gotten into a point, though, where some of this stuff has gotten a bit religious. Some of the Web3 stuff, some of the Bitcoin stuff, all the stuff going on with Jack and Block and Twitter. He's a massive maximalist. He wants to tear it all down first before he creates the next Web3 temples. It's a bit creepy to me, Danny. And the other thing is Board Ape Yacht Club. This is an OG NFT PFP project, and now it's turning into a metaverse. Last week, they sold deeds to virtual land into a metaverse attached to all this stuff. They raised $320 million. The floor price for Board Apes, there are 10,000 of them, is somewhere up near 100 ETH. Now, that's coming in pretty hard. It seems like that whole pocket has been divorced from the economic reality that's hitting almost every other risk asset. We're also about to see it in actually real deeds with mortgage rates up the 30-year at 5.5%, the highest since 2009. We might start seeing it in real land with that sort of asset coming in. So to me, there just seems to be a big disconnect right there. I was just about to say that 
it's one thing to have real land where rates are going up. It costs more to finance. It's another to have virtual land. And we're talking about that right now. So right when you said that, you actually lost me at PT, DF, PFP, a personal profile pick. That was it for me. I want to go off on something else right now, if I can just change the direction here. And I rotted a couple months ago about Wall Street research in general. And that rot was really targeted toward these specialty finance companies, masses tech companies, right? The affirms of the world, the upstarts of the world. And that really stems from what we thought was cleaned up after 2000 with Frank Quattrone and Blodgett and all that stuff. And there's a separation between research and banking. Well, let me give a little flavor of what's going on and how that really works. Company comes in, they want to do banking with the Morgan Stanley or somebody. The banker says, great, we're going to categorize this as a tech company, not as a finance company. We should get this analyst to cover it. And the analyst has it aside on his own, blah, 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 bullshit. Ozoni's going to cover it. He's going to throw some target on it. So you have these analysts like Adam Jonas. I'll just point him out. Just that comes to mind. The downgrades Carvana yesterday, right? This is a guy that covers Tesla, among other stocks in Carvana. Still, it keeps a target of 105. He downgrades it when the stock was at 57. So effectively, it was almost a double. So the whole thing's a complete hypocrisy. I know that the professional investors out there really don't pay attention to Wall Street analyst ratings. I get it. You can use them for their models. We all know that most of them are compromised. They just are. Look how many buy ratings there are on Wall Street versus sell ratings and hold ratings and so forth. But to the retail investor out there, I beg you, please do your own work and don't look. And let me just take this one step farther. Adam Jonas covers Tesla. Mark my words, that'll be the last stock he ever, he'll downgrade that stock at 100 before he downgrades it anytime soon. Why is that? Morgan Stanley's out there, obviously trying to help them raise money. They've made a tremendous amount in banking fees. I'm stating the obvious here, but you brought up Tesla earlier, almost got through the episode without mentioning it. So they're trying to line up financing for this 5420 genius bid that they're making, which is just exactly the number that they came up with because that's what it's worth. So who comes in? I just love this part. The Kingdom Holding Company, Saudi Prince. So I just love how Musk, Mr. ESG, Mr. Free Speech goes and will do anything he can to take care of his own self-interest. And so I am sick and tired of all of this, not just Tesla. I'm sick and tired of these Wall Street analysts. Sorry, now I'm fired up. This is a rot, I guess. I'm sick and tired. And I turn it back to you guys, but I had to get that in there because I watch this and I just laugh because I was on that side of the business. I know how it works. Danny, so you mentioned the 5420, the bid for Twitter and all the people that he's got lined up. Think about this. You know what's not in China? Twitter. You know what is in China and a really important part of the bull case for Tesla, China. And what is he going to do with his big free speech argument when the platform that he's buying and he's taking private is one of the worst violators? He will not be able to speak outwardly against the Chinese Communist Party and their views on that as it relates to Twitter, but he will do everything to ingratiate himself with them so he can sell their cars and make them there. It's going to be a massive conflict of interest. And I actually think, again, this is an area where Tesla shareholders actually are vulnerable because he's messing around with this stuff with Twitter, and it may really piss off a lot of other constituencies that may adversely affect the Tesla share price. And not to pile on Adam Jonas, because we should have him on. I actually think he does really thoughtful work. And, you know, sometimes analysts just get themselves offside. <laughs> oh, my God. Amanda, you got to get a screenshot of Danny's face when you just said that guy. It was absolutely amazing. His eyes popped out of his head. Keep going. Back to the craps table. Just for context, Morgan Stanley had a revenue for Carvana for the year 2030 at $94.2 billion. They cut that down to 57.9. I mean, it's extraordinary, some of these things. To your point, Danny. Their interest costs are $500 million a year, Carvana. They'll never make money again now with this debt. There is so much debt in front of this equity. 
I just use that as an example. And people think, oh, short seller talking his book. No, this has been 360 down to here. Honestly, I just want people to not get hurt. And I swear that's the truth. And let me just say, so Musk is going to be temporary CEO of Twitter. That's great. He does have enough going on already because he'll be really good at that. It's just amazing to me how this goes on still. Well, let's talk about that because something that Dan mentioned on Fast Money, we've mentioned it on our podcast, Market Call, you name it, we've mentioned it. This Twitter deal, in my opinion, is somewhat contingent upon how well Tesla stock does. And I got to tell you something, Tesla stock, which was a $700 item a few months ago, traded back north of 1100 came out with the best earnings release in the history of the company by far. I think we would all agree on that. We can nitpick a little bit, but I said on the show that night, that was the earnings release that people that had been buying the stock the prior three years have been waiting for. I think the stock traded up to 1080. It's less than 900 now. If we do a round trip back to 700, a lot of weird things can start happening, Danny Moses, in terms of Tesla, in terms of Twitter, and potentially in terms of the broader market thoughts. Well, listen, it was the immaculate quarter. And I'm not making accusations here, but it's really staggering how margins got to those levels with all the supply chain issues. And so you know what the delivery numbers are. You can figure out stuff, but it was almost too good to be true. Let's just leave it at that. But what did Musk do in Solar City when he got margin called there? He bought Solar City. That's what he did. If you guys remember, of course, the judge who's probably driving a nice Tesla somewhere now, who has now left the bench, decided that he did nothing wrong in that. It's all another story. But seriously, he finds a way. He likes to control the narrative. Who knows? And There'll be massive call buying guy the day that this Twitter deal is supposed to close or the funding's supposed to be announced. Make no mistake about it. I'm not going to call that this will be the thing that unravels it. But again, is the company worth $850 billion? Absolutely not. Do do investors want to price it there? Sure. So who's wrong? Me. Because they believe that's what it's worth. But at $300, it's overvalued. At $200, it's overvalued. $100, it's overvalued. So you're not going to get me on valuation. You want to get me that the guy's the greatest thing to ever happen to the corporate world, to ESG. It's bullshit. So whatever. Whoa, Danny, was this a second rot? Here's the thing, and we've also made this case. We're having a generational unwind of a bull market here. We're seeing it before our eyes. As long as I've been in this business, 25 years, and I think you guys have been in for just a few years longer than me, I have never, ever seen a cult stock, a cult story come unwound when the market gets unwound. It's just that simple, people. You may have a very long-term time horizon for this stock and for the company and what they're doing. In the near term, it will not be immune. That simply, and going back to the Twitter thing, that 5420 bid is what, $43, $44 billion? Well, Snap is down 10% today. You know what its market cap is? $44 billion. People don't think that's a broken platform. They don't think there's hate speech on that platform or repression of free speech. You're telling me that Snap, that had nearly 2.5x the market cap at its highs last year of Twitter, now that it's trading at the same market cap that Elon Musk wants to take it out at, You think that makes any sense? Either Snap needs to be much higher or Twitter needs to be much lower. But here's the good news. If you're a Twitter shareholder, sold to you, buddy. If you're owning this stock, you are just selling it hand over fist because it will never get better. Not anytime soon. Not in this market. Hey, Dan, can I just say one other thing you made me think about just in general? So in 2008 and 2009, I think I've mentioned this before, when the Fed came up, Treasury came up with all their programs, the PPIPs, the TARPs, the TALPs, and all those things, and then this QE1, QE2, QE3, and most recently QE4, we never really faced all the pain that we should have from 2010, from 2009. We did not. And what it created was this moral hazard in this vacuum where 
The Fed has your back. The Fed's going to do it. And we have been living in this. So when people say, Danny, why are you scared? Because I believe we're going to start to see some of the things that should have naturally occurred, the right clearing price for real estate, the right clearing price for equities, the right clearing price for bonds, everything, just a rational level. And that is going to be a painful reversion to the mean. And I hope it doesn't happen in a straight line. I hope it happens gradually. I don't think the landing is going to be soft. But if you want to ask me, having lived through that, I lived through the dot-com bubble, and then I'm now I'm living through this. And I went through this period of time as a fundamental hedge fund analyst, unable to really do fundamental work on many companies. And now part of it's, you kind of feel like you get this freedom again to do it. And again, people, it'll be on the long side and on the short side. And I hope it's sooner on the long side. Believe me, I want to come in the show and give 10 stocks that I love long. And here's why. So I just wanted to tie a bow on that. And we'll get to those levels where you will come on, but there's an integrity to your work that I think we try to bring forth every week without exception. And unfortunately, that's been on the negative bend of things for the last six months, by the way, correctly so. And Dan, you've mentioned this. There have been dozens, if not more, stocks that have not gone down, that have crashed since last summer. The only thing that hasn't really kept up is the broader market. Now you're starting to see hints of it, which, by the way, I think it's a great thing. I think we're going to flush a lot of the excess out of the system. I think we will find an equilibrium, and I think there'll be a base for a new bull market, which will be extraordinary, I think, in 2023. But it takes some pain to get there first, Dan. No doubt. I said it on Fast Money on the Desk last night. You know how I am, guy, on days like that where they just rip your face off. And I'm a little ornery on those days. And I said, listen, people, if you think down 10% or down 15% from its peak in the S&P 500, given everything we know about all the headwinds to economic growth and the rate environment here, you think that's it? You got another thing coming. And so why do we know this? And why do we sound so certain about this? Because you cannot have the sort of unwinds of pockets of risk that we we've seen in public markets and have this distortion between a handful of stocks keep up the major averages. It just doesn't work. And here's another pocket of risk. And we've talked about this on the podcast. Private Funds have not taken the proper marks yet. They're commensurate with what's going on in the public markets. And when they do that, you're going to see some bloodletting because a lot of these are crossover funds. That means they invest in private and in public. And they may sell some of the stuff that's liquid in the public markets to kind of deal with potentially redemptions or that sort of thing. So to me, that hasn't happened yet. Okay. And I think that's coming to a theater near you. And the last point I'd make here, this is really interesting. So think about what Amazon said and what investors have punished at 20% over the last week since they reported earnings. They overbuilt. They overbuilt on their logistics. They overbuilt on their warehouses and all this sort of stuff. And people did not like higher costs. That's been the story of Amazon for 20 years because we know the retail profit margins are so low. But here's the thing. There will be knock-on effects here. I have a friend. He runs the deer or the cat tractor regional sales in one of these places. They've been selling these tractors hand over fist to Amazon or people building these centers in Amazon all over the place. It's gone on for years. Think about the knock-on effects. Think about if we do go into a recession, we talked about this with Rosie a little bit here. What are the things that companies can do to cut costs when costs are high? They can cut headcount. They can cut advertising. We're starting to see that with a digital ad name. So the list goes on and on about the knock-ons. Oh, maybe AWS 
sees a greater deceleration because some of these shit companies are finally going under because they're financed with really cheap money. The list goes on and on. This is the story of the post-dot-com era in the early aughts. It's also the story of the deleveraging in the global financial crisis and all the interconnectedness. Danny, you guys were probably picking them out left and right, the things that were connected to each other. So that hasn't happened yet. That shoe has to drop too, guys. CapEx cuts were one of the main reasons why crude oil is now 110, in my opinion, going significantly higher. And that obviously happened a couple of years ago. And we can debate this the reason why is it doesn't really matter. But we're 30 minutes into this, and we have not mentioned one word. Word isn't Tesla, because we mentioned that a number of times. The word we haven't mentioned, given everything we're talking about, the logical thing is, well, what do you guys think about gold? So, Danny, I turn to you. Gold clearly has not worked since that blow-off top two months or so ago. Is there a place, is that set up for gold coming right before our very eyes? I think there's a binary setup for gold. And when I say binary, I mean bullish on both outcomes. If the Fed loses all credibility and control, I believe that means gold goes up. I know gold on the margin is trading with the U.S. dollar. It showed it yesterday when the dollar traded down, gold traded up. Today, I believe gold right now, it held a little bit. I think it's doing okay today. I'm not looking at it live right now, guy, of the dollar reaccelerating. And then there's the pivot. Then there's inflation comes down really fast. So I guess what I'm saying is massive inflation is good for gold. And then any move by the Fed to do anything to take their foot off of the pedal of tightening is a positive for gold. But then you have all the geopolitical stuff, which is not going to get any better. You have countries like Sri Lanka, which are literally bankrupt, which literally can't pay their bills right now. I know it's only $30 billion and we lose track of how much money that is relative to our $30 trillion debt load. That's a whole nother issue. But my point is that those pieces are happening in various places. And whatever happens with the ruble and what happens to China, I don't know. I just see a scenario. And if Bitcoin does continue to sell off and unwind, I think gold gets its mojo back. So I'm long gold. I realize it doesn't pay a dividend. I realize, but I feel like there's very little downside and the potential for massive upside. Listen, for those listening, and we do appreciate, obviously, none of us take any pleasure in the markets getting obliterated the way we're seeing it, not only just on Thursday, but over the last couple of weeks. But what we're here to do is not to bring out our pom-poms and cheerlead and say everything's going to be great. I think at some point it will be. We're just here to try to help you navigate and to see some of the things that people are just too scared or just not well-equipped enough to talk about. With that said, Danny Moses, something you're extraordinarily well-equipped to talk about is what happens every first Saturday in May. Yes, I had to think about that for a second, because effectively this will be the first Saturday in May. The latest the Kentucky Derby can be will be this Saturday in the rain in Kentucky. Danny Moses, the floor is yours. Please handicap one of the greatest races in mankind. Yeah, the greatest two minutes in sports. So last year, guys, you'll remember, we had Jack Wolf on from Starlight Racing with Bob Baffert. So Bob Baffert has been suspended for this derby. So he has another trainer, Yachtin, that's in his place. So let me just set that as back because Jack does own a piece of this horse, Messier, number six, named after Mark Messier, who the Rangers could have used the other night. And by the way, guy, I don't know where that referee is. That call was one of the worst calls I've seen in sports history. Go ahead before I go back to the horses. Go ahead. You're speaking about what would have been the game-winning goal, as fate would have it, for the New York Rangers when one Capo Caco, the second pick in the NHL draft a couple of years ago, basically drove the net, was pushed from behind, basically touched the goaltender. The Rangers subsequently scored on that play, only to have it reversed in review, which was complete horseshit. Notice, by the way, that the Rangers did not complain. They have played it very classy 
as we're doing this, the Rangers play this evening. So when this drops, I'm hoping that we have a series tied at one. Back to you, Danny Moses. Yes, I needed your comment on that. So here we go. I'll make this short. Steve Asmussen, who is very confident about his horse. He's 0-23 in the Derby. He's going to be like the crowd favorite because he's had so many quality horses. He has a three-horse epicenter. Now, the forecast is going to be wet for sure, wet track. It looks like the heavy stuff's coming down Friday. And then Saturday, it might be cloudy, but the track will be wet, but hopefully it's not a muddy mess. However, Epicenter is a mudder and does have one of the second fastest or third fastest speed ratings. We call the buyer rating of near 102, I think he ran. The two other fast horses are Messier, the number six horse, who had a 103 buyer, and Taiba, a 103 buyer. Both of those, by the way, are trained by Bob Baffert's protege, I will say. So I like those horses, but I like Epicenter across to win play show. You also have Zandon. He's currently three to one right now. That is the 10 horse. That's Chad Brown's horse. It won the bluegrass. It came from behind to do it. It's coming out of the 10 hole. It's probably okay. I will say this. The dark horse to me, which is a light horse, which is White Abario, coming out of the 15 slot. The 15 slot has produced four winners since 2000. Now, that's a lot when you consider most of the time 20 horses run. Why is that? It's not random. There's a reason that that slot, you know, the way they set up those post positions, they're in fives and whatever. It comes out. You get a clean break. This horse loves coming from behind. It's really only one and run in Florida. But I do like this thing here. That's 10 to 1. And so I do like that horse as well. But the way I would play it is I like Epicenter to win place and show. I like an exacto box with Epicenter, Zandon, Wide Barrio, and Messier. That's the 3, 6, 10, and 15. Box that together. And then if I'm going to go for the super fact, I want to put a lot of horses in. 3, 6, 10, 12, 1, 8, and 15. You got to finish in the top four in any order. That's out of 20. So it's not that crazy. But again, I really like Epicenter here. I think he wins the race. And I'm rooting, obviously, for Jack Wolf and Starlight Racing with the Messier and the Rangers and so forth. So those are my picks. I hope that was somewhat clear. I'll tweet that out as well so people get a better picture for it. For those of you that are frantically trying to write down numbers, fear not. We will post these on the Risk Reversal website. Danny Moses will post these on his Twitter account. And I'm sure they'll be in other places prior to post-time in Lexington, Kentucky, at Churchill Downs. I want you to enjoy the Kentucky Derby. Sunday is Mother's Day. I want you all to have a lovely Mother's Day for those that are listening. And remember, this too shall pass. But all the things we've been talking about, again, this is not we told you so type of shit, but all the things we've been talking about over the last six to nine months are literally coming to fruition before our very eyes. So buckle in, folks. The next couple of weeks are going to be fascinating. When we come back, famed economist David Rosenberg will join us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. 
we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. David Rosenberg is the president and chief economist and strategist of Rosenberg Research and Associates, an economic consulting firm where he and his team provide investors with analysis and insights to help them make well-informed investment decisions. Prior to Rosenberg Research, David was chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef and chief North American economist at Merrill Lynch in New York. David, welcome back to On the Tape. Thanks for inviting me back. Much appreciated. Thanks, man. Well, listen, we're going to have a punchy little conversation here because you know what? It is Thursday afternoon. There's about an hour and a half left in the market here today, and it has been a heck of a 24 hours. And it's really been a crazy month. Guy and I read your research. It's one of the first things that I read every morning, and you've really had a beat on this Fed for months and months, really since they did that pivot back in the fall, but you also have a very different take on how you think they proceed from here. One of the things that when we were watching the Fed presser here, and I think you really went through it pretty well in your note this morning, they didn't say the things that an up 4% in the NASDAQ and up 3% in the S&P really warranted. Talk to us a little bit of your interpretation of what Jay Powell said yesterday versus what they are doing and what you think the market interpreted. Well, look, I think the market in a classic knee-jerk reaction thought that his comment that 75 basis points was off the table as something to rejoice when the only person who was ever really talking about it was Jim Bullard. So I think that's really what the market responded to primarily. I think it's just a test. Look, the fact that you get a 900-point-plus surge in the Dow with just the hint that we're not going to go 75 basis points, I think just attested going into the meeting as to how jittery the markets were and how probably technically oversold that it was going in. So it was really a classic short squeeze. And as I said in my note, we have to keep in mind that movements like that in the stock market, daily moves like that to the upside, actually happen more in bear markets than they do in bull markets. So I said, this is something that you probably want to fade right away. I wasn't thinking that the whole thing was going to get reversed and then some in today's action. But it was an overreaction. And I think the bottom line here is that what did Powell say? Quite remarkably, in his press conference, he used the word uncertainty eight different times. And normally, we've been all following the Fed for a long period of time. When you're uncertain as a central banker, (laughs) you usually don't do anything. You sit on your hands. But they believe that their inflation credibility is really at stake. They all believe that. I don't necessarily believe that, but there's a lot of other people that we hear and see from that do believe that they bungled the whole thing. And so he has to continue to sound tough on inflation. 75 basis points to say that we're not going to go that route was camouflage for the fact that 50 basis points is hardly ever done. You got to go back to 2000 when Greenspan went 50 basis points. And then he tells you we're going to go 50 basis points at the next two meetings. And so you start to weigh that in. So they're not going 75. Okay, that's nice. So we're not going to go nuclear. We'll go the next rung down. But, you know, 50 basis point hikes, three meetings in a row, on top of the balance sheet, is very significant monetary tightening. And I think that's the sober second thought that the market's having today. 
Yeah, long overdue, I would submit, but that's just me. And just full disclosure, I think you probably know this. I am no fan of the Federal Reserve at all. And I'll say it here. I don't, it doesn't bother me. I think amongst the many villains of the 21st century, and there's a long list, I think central bankers would be on the top of it, not because they're bad people, but because they think they can somehow control things they have zero control over. And in terms of the credibility, the credibility train left the station a long time ago. But I'll ask you this question. This is clearly a much different Federal Reserve than it was during the Trump administration when the market was a report card for their success or failure. Now they don't really seem to care about the market. And I would say about time. Thoughts on that, Rosie? Well, they do care about the market. It's a matter of what does the Fed want the market to do? And so, for example, Bernanke made it very clear. Remember with that famous op-ed piece in the Washington Post when they did QE2 back in 2010, which the market wasn't expecting to see, it made it very clear that this is all about the wealth effect on spending. We want to generate asset inflation to get animal spirits up in the business sector and to generate spending in the household sector. And the question all along was, okay, for the Fed to get what it wants, which was really a move back to full employment, how tight would high yield spreads have to get, for example, and how high would the stock market have to get to achieve that? And so that's really what's happened over time. It's the most, I would agree with you, Guy, this is the most asset-dependent economy we've ever had. There's always been this symbiotic relationship between the economy and the financial markets and the financial markets back to the real economy, but it's the tightest relationship we've ever seen. So right now, you're quite right. People say, well, what's the Powell put? People don't like the answer that I give because if he's comparing himself to Volcker, which he did to Senator Shelby back in early March at the congressional testimony, remember that the Volcker put was innate multiple in the summer of 1982. Look, if they want to get inflation down and they can only influence demand and they influence demand through the financial conditions, by definition, the stock market has to go down. By definition, credit spreads have to widen. The question is, at what point do they get to these levels that get the Fed thinking, okay, that demand has recalibrated to supply to an extent that inflation is going to come down to more manageable levels? That's really the key here. So let me ask you this. It's interesting you say the Powell put or the Volcker put. And I think he had an opportunity to be Paul Volcker in October of 2018 when he was basically a neophyte in the job, came out and said, we're going to reduce the balance sheet. I think autopilot was something he used. I don't remember because I'm getting old. We're going to raise rates. And I would submit he was spot on with that one. And then he got browbeat by that administration. and He got spooked because the market went down 19.9% in three months and he flinched. Will he flinch now if the market starts to precipitously decline? Let's just go back to that period in late 2018, because in a one-month span, the stock market was down almost 20%. But more to the point, and keeping in mind that he is a credits guy after all, you didn't have one high-yield bond issue in a six-week span. The credit market just froze. Now, I will say this much, that they started to see something in the economy. I don't think it was just pressure from Trump, because Trump was pressuring them all the way through 2018, and they still hiked rates four times. They shrank the balance sheet. But remember that the yield curve ultimately inverted in August of 2019. And I was saying at the time, that is the recession signal. People laughed at me like they did this last time around. And I would just say this much, that If you're looking at the monthly sequence of data, real retail sales, industrial production, the monthly GDP numbers, the economy was sputtering. In fact, I would say it was heading into a mild recession before the pandemic hit. And that's really what we have to always be cognizant of is the lags between 
Fed policy and the impact it has on the economy. The economy was weakening substantially in the last few months of 2019 into early 2020. In terms of um, this time around, yeah, I guess you could say they bungled. I think what they bungled the most was really how do you define transitory? We've been hit with these multiple shocks, and we had not just the ongoing pandemic, but remember Omicron was another shock at the beginning of the year, and now we have what's happened in China where they shut down port cities with millions of people every few weeks, and we have the war. Who is calling for Putin to invade the Ukraine? These are all inflationary shocks. Wars are inflationary. And I was saying that we had a dual war shock and global health shock back from, say, 1916 to 1920. And I know I'm going back a century, sample size of one, but that was a monumental double shock. The war happened first and the Spanish flu. This time around, it was the COVID and then this first shooting war in Europe in 80 years. And this is actually inflationary from the supply side. We had five years heading into the end of the Spanish flu where inflation averaged 15% per year. Was that transitory or not transitory? Nobody talks about it. F. Scott Fitzgerald published The Great Gatsby five years later. There's no mention of the great new era of inflation back then. The Fed bungled really what transitory meant. There's no definition of a timestamp on transitory. It just means not permanent. But in any event, I would say that I think that if we're going to actually talk about the history of the Fed going all the way back to the post-World War II period, well, how did we end up getting 11 recessions? It was because the Fed overstays the accommodation, then they overdo it on the tightening. And it's just the cycle. It's just one giant sine wave after one sine wave after another sine wave. And so that's exactly what's happening this time. The Fed definitely overstayed on the accommodation. They should not have been expanding the balance sheet like they did into that Biden budget buster just over a year ago. That was a real critical mistake. So you said something is interesting. 11 recessions. Is a recession a bad thing? I mean, I understand it's not a pleasant thing, but isn't it a natural part of the business cycle? And why do we flinch when we're on the verge of one? I would submit you need a recession to flush out some of the excess in the system. The fact that we somehow think we can alchemy it out, think it's not going to be helpful. That's why we have so many zombie companies right now. And I would submit corporate America has gotten lazy because they've had this Fed backstop all along. The fact that we don't think recessions are necessary to me is really problematic. I think that's the crux of the problem. Well, the reality is that whether or not we want to agree that recessions are necessary or a good thing, they are a part of the economic cycle, just as bear markets are part and parcel of the market cycle. So they go hand in hand together. So I'm not going to make a value judgment on them. I'm going to say that they are part and parcel of the landscape. My job as economist and strategist is to try and identify where are we in the business cycle without getting emotional about it, and how do you invest around it? And that's really, to me, the value add. So the point I'm just going to make is that recessions are inevitable. Thankfully, from a stability standpoint, recessions are typically short affairs. They are a haircut on GDP. The market impact is usually a lot bigger. Usually, you get the stock market could be down 30 40%. And that could happen even with a 1% to 2% decline in GDP when you measure it, the impact it has on earnings and then the multiple. But they are a fact of life. And the cycle is the cycle. And you're quite right. I think that even if we didn't have the Fed and we let interest rates just dictate where they're going to go on their own, and the Fed hasn't always been part of the fabric, we still have recessions before the creation of the Fed. So it's just the natural flow of greed and fear and everything in between. And when you get to these excesses, which we did this time around, you're right, they end up getting purged. Guy, they get purged even without the Fed. 
the markets would do the purging. So that's it. The cycle, like I said, is just a cycle. And this time around, I'd have to say, look, you go back to the post-World War II period, and you're quite right. Interest rates drive everything. What did Einstein say about the eighth wonder of the world was the power of compound interest. So we can talk about the Fed or just let's just talk about interest rates. And interest rates drive the economic cycle and they also drive the market cycle. And that's the situation we're in right now. We're in a very pernicious interest rate cycle. This will generate the conditions for a recession and a bear market, which has started, which then will sow the seeds for the next round of declines in interest rates. And uh, that's just the never-ending story. Well, so David, where does the Fed get Fed funds back? Because if we go back over the last 22 years, we know that Fed funds was 6.5% when the stock market topped out in 2000. It was 5.25% when it topped out in 2007. It was 2.5% when it topped out in 2020. Here we are, just above 1%. And I guess the point about financial conditions, and I'd love to get your sense for this, is If we have a negative wealth effect from a stock market, the S&P right now, as we talk, is only down 13%. The NASDAQ's down nearly 22%. So it feels like we got a lot more to go as far as the stock market's concerned. And we'll talk about valuation. We'll talk about the appropriate multiple. We'll talk about where we think S&P earnings end up for 2022. I think we're probably all in agreement that's the next shoe to drop, meaning strategists have not really taken down their estimates enough to consider everything that's going on with inflation and the rising rate cycle here. But I guess the point about recessions is you already think we're in one. We had that Q1 negative print. A lot of strategists were trying to explain it away here. And you just quoted that monthly data from October to March. And you had this great tweet this morning. You saw David Rubenstein on CNBC. He was saying, we're not going into a recession anytime soon. You said he's correct because you don't have to go into recession once it's already started. So talk to me a little bit about this. The idea, once it becomes more pervasive, once investors start seeing continued negative returns in the stock market, we've seen where mortgage rates have gone. They're at the highest levels now in the 30 years since 2009. So if they feel less wealth from their house, from their home, at some point, the consumer's going to blink here. And what does the Fed do? Because going back to 2018, the guy's point, they pivot. If Fed funds is not materially higher than it is right now, let's say it's below 2%, do you think Fed funds tops out below the last high of 2.5%? And what are the tools in their toolbox? Do they take their foot off the pedal on QT? What happens next if we are in a recession and other strategists and economists come around to your way of thinking? Incomes lead spending. And remember that recessions are not nominal economic variables. They're real economic variables. Nominal GDP never went down, never contracted in the 1970s. And between 1970 and 1980, we had three recessions. Real GDP contracted. And so real disposable income has been negative six of the past seven months. And so that is already leading to an erosion in real consumer spending. And you're seeing it basically since October, real consumer spending has been negative. I know people say, well, consumer spending was one of the positives in the first quarter report. 70% of the growth in consumer spending happened in January. We had a really big pop in January, and then it's slowed down ever since. And we're heading into the second quarter with negative momentum on consumer spending. And as you said, when you look at the monthly GDP numbers, it's very clear that the recession is starting. It has to hit the labor market before I think the Fed wakes up, and I think before the consensus wakes up. 
and everybody's talking about the hot, hot, hot labor market. People look at job openings. The job openings data, by the way, it's become like front page news and even Powell talks about it. It's the softest piece of labor data you can think of. I mean, you whisper in somebody's ear at a job fair and it's job opening. But you could see a couple of things happening here that's very important, which is that in the JOLTS data, which nobody talked about, they talked about the openings going to a record high, but yet hirings were down significantly and layoffs were up. And of course, we got validation with the jobless claim numbers that came out today. 20,000 above expected. But a major point here is this. So basically, by the time the consensus catches on, the NBER catches on, the Fed catches on, it's going to be too late. And the one thing we haven't seen yet, because we've seen the erosion in the spending side, GDP is spending. You can't just exclude exports. Exports is a critical component of the economy, two and a half trillion dollars, chunk of the economy, and it's all domestic production. People say, well, ignore exports and GDP is just fine. Well, you only exclude something if you believe that it's non-recurring. But the erosion in net exports has been happening for seven quarters. And between the supercharged US dollar and the weakness in demand abroad, that's going to continue to be a drag on GDP. GDP is actually, if you're looking at the sequence of the monthly data, not the quarterly average, it is deteriorating. This doesn't become mainstream until it really hits the labor market. And let's face it, up until very recently, that hasn't happened. But I do have a smoking gun, which is the ADP numbers that came out for April, because the small business sector in the past three months has laid off a net 105,000 people. That is a bona fide recession sign. Large cap companies are still hiring, but large cap company human resource departments live in the ivory tower. Small business is in the weeds of the economy. They are seeing what's happening right through the front window. And uh, if you look historically, when you have a three-month decline in small business employment, the recession is right around the corner. So it's not hit the, quotes official data yet. We'll see what the payroll number looks like. But I think that's going to be the big surprise is, oops, all of a sudden, the labor market's eroding. The unemployment rate is going up. And all it takes, if you look historically, on average, and this is going back the past 70 years, on average, if the unemployment rate is up three-tenths from the low, recession is staring in the face. The median is four-tenths. People say to me, are you kidding me? You mean to tell me if we get to 4% unemployment, we'll be in a recession? I'm saying 100% correct. You see, and it comes down to your comment on interest rates. It's never about the levels. It's about the change. Believe it or not, a three to four-tenths increase in unemployment rate is actually, for that statistic, a very big move. You're talking about the funds rate, and you're right, the, the peak in the funds rate for the past 40 years has been getting lower and lower and lower, and that's because the natural rate of interest is getting lower and lower and lower because of excessive debt, disruptive technology, and aging demographics. That's not changing. You can see there's a lot of people in the Fed that believe that the natural rate of interest is 2%. Powell thought it was 3% when he was hiking rates in 2018, told everybody we got to get 3% plus, but they were overestimating where the neutral rate was. They ultimately corrected that. But the natural rate of interest, because of the factors I'm talking about, has continued to come down over time. The point I'm making, though, is different, which is that it's not the level of interest rates. It's the change. As we're talking about recessions, recessions are about the change in the economy. So any economist worth his or her salt, you don't run regressions with levels on change and change on levels. We're talking about growth here, in this case, negative growth. So you regress change on change. So it's not about the level of the funds rate. It's about the change. 
And we're going to find out actually that let's call it one to one and a half percent funds rate. This cycle is going to feel like what two and a half was back in 2018. So in answer to the question, I think we're going to peak on the funds rate well below what's priced in right now. I do too. I don't have the bona fides that you do on that. I just think that if you think the levels of debt to your point that we have right now, they just can't go meaningfully higher. Your point, David, about small businesses and starting to see some layoffs. One of the things, if you follow tech rags, like the information or whatever, it seems like every other day there's a big feature on some hot consumer private tech company that maybe saw some pull forward during the pandemic. Maybe it's like Web3 related, but they're laying people off. And part of that has to do with the interest rate environment. So when rates were at zero and VCs could readjust what they're willing to pay for things, well, now a lot of these private companies don't want to do down rounds. So what do they have to do? They have to rationalize their costs. One of the biggest costs is obviously expensive engineers, especially if you have a slower environment. And we're already seeing this in some of these digital ad names. So they're also cutting in places like that. Might we see it at AWS or Microsoft's Azure? So there's pockets of risk in the private tech markets that I don't think have reared their head just yet as we think about the economy, as we think about public markets. One of the things that Guy and Danny and I have spent a lot of time on since we started this podcast a year and a half ago almost is that the disconnects that we've seen in these different pockets of risk, they basically all come unwound for the most part. And there's a handful of names as far as in the technology sector that are still trading at egregious valuations. And I'm looking at all of them right now, whether it be a snowflake that was trading at 20 plus times sales just recently down from 40 times sales. Well, that's down 10% today. And those stocks are going to continue to get crushed. But let me ask you this, because the last shoe I think that you think is going to drop, and Guy and I and Danny are also in this camp, is how are we looking at a stock market right now where Apple makes up 7% of the S&P 500, 13% of the NASDAQ 100, and it's only down 6.5% on the year, which most of it is coming today alone. So talk to us a little bit how we should think about pockets of risk that have yet to be rationalized for all intents and purposes. And is that really the thing that starts to get this market going somewhere down? Guy's got a 3750 target. It looks like you have a 3550 target. Is that the thing that happens? And how quickly does it happen? We did some arithmetic just looking at mean reverting the market cap share of the Fang Me group. And uh, if we just did the arithmetic assumption that the rest of the market just stayed the same, just mean reverting, Mean reverting means you go through the mean. So if we're talking about going back to where we started the cycle, when this group was more like an 8% share of the market, we can easily go down to 3,100. And that's just an arithmetic exercise. I'd say that it's a very interesting situation with the market because you've had energy, obviously, up until recently, the material stocks. I mean, these aren't overwhelmingly big shares of the market, but you also had two reasonably sized groups that up until a couple of weeks ago, we're hitting all-time highs, which was consumer staples and utilities. So what I was saying is that we can get carried away sometimes just talking about what the major averages are doing. And we have to dig beneath to say, what are the relative strength of the various sectors? Because each sector has its own economic sensitive characteristic. The only people that are interested in, so what's the overall market going to do, are people that are passive index investors. So when you see the market's down only 13%, yeah, I get that. I'm wondering, what is the information of the market? I do consider this to be a bear market when utilities and staples were hitting all-time highs, the sort of stuff you want to own in a recession. Now, I think that in a recession, things can get a lot worse, even among the stuff that's really been beaten up. 
and you've had a lot of stuff beaten up. The home building stocks, the home furnishing stocks. I mean, look what Home Depot had been doing. At one point, it was down, I think, more than 50%. Consumer electronics, even consumer services. Remember, we'd be thinking that we got the big reopening trade. Uh, Omicron's in the rearview mirror. you got restaurants filled. The airlines are filled. Consumer cyclical service stocks are in a steep correction. Last I looked, they were down 13%. That's a reasonably big share of the market. Consumer cyclical services held up because temporarily we have this bounce from the reopening trade. That's one area I think that can actually have a lot more damage. But I'm taking a look at this market. Home building stocks were down more than 30%. Home furnishings, consumer electronics, the retailing stocks are almost in the bear market. Now, I think the retailing stocks are down 18% in the consumer recession. It'll be a lot worse than that when you're asking about what are the next shoes to drop. We've had some erosion in capital goods and machinery. They're not yet in a bear market either, although there's been a serious drawdown. Those are areas because people believe we're going to have a CapEx cycle. We're not going to have a CapEx cycle. So those are some of the areas. I mean, you've already seen the big hit in technology. Technology isn't a bear market, but the old economy, sort of machinery, capital goods, so on and so forth, they've sort of lagged behind. They have, I think, more downside as well. But the point I'm making here is that this is what happens. The recession's just starting. Normally in the lead-up, so normally in the lead-up to the recession, by the way, the market's down 10%. And that includes reflex rebound, like we had just a couple of weeks ago. You have a 10% down payment on the bear market as we head into the recession because the stock market prices it in being a leading indicator. And then through the first 80% of the recession till we bottom before the recession ends, you're down another 20%. You see what I mean? So historically, the average recession bear market is 30%. Now, that's just the average. It could be 20 or it could be 40 or 50. An average is dispersions around that. But the point is that the stock market is following this thing to a T. Down 10, you said we're down 13 right now. That makes sense when you consider where we are in the cycle. Recession is starting, in my opinion, in very critical sectors of the economy, including, by the way, personal income, which is 80% of the economy. It will show up in spending with a lag. Real incomes lead real spending. People just don't see it yet. That's what we have right now. We have people and Fed that are, quotes data dependent. They're data dependent. Well, what does that even mean? Can you not see what's going to be happening in the next three to six months? Because I can't say that my forecasting record is perfect. Nobody's is. But I sort of do have a view as to how things are going to unfold. It just comes down to Warren Buffett's famous refrain about one thing that people know about history is that they don't know enough about history. And so I'm just taking a look at the playbook. So there's at least probably another 20% downside here. That's fair. I'm with you. I think we're definitely on the same page. And it's interesting. The data-dependent stuff is complete horseshit, to use that word. For the second time, it's one of the dumbest phrases I've ever heard. If you watch Fast Money, I've never uttered it on the show because it's flat-out stupid, number one. Number two, you've seen these things before. There are places where you can be and actually find yourself somewhat protected from everything we just talked about. Can you speak to that, David? Well, I think the places that, if you're going to quotes hide, I think you want to be looking for what I would call safety and income at a reasonable price. So I call it SERP. I would say that maybe you want to take a look at bank preferreds. There's nothing I'm talking about that's taken any U.S. bank down. So look, in the name of taking on risk, and we're all talking about risk, we're not talking about necessarily going into cash. I think that right now, that's probably a good place to be, short-term bank paper. Right now, actually, there is a yield. The one thing that's happened that's really positive here, 
for people that actually are not just day traders and looking for capital gains, okay, this is really right now about capital preservation, and I would say preservation of cash flows. We had a Fed chairman use the word uncertainty eight times. We're in an uncertain period, but you're, now you're starting to get yield. And so I would say that that's really what you want to be focused on. It's probably one of the reasons why MLPs have been doing well, the pipelines. Why have utility stocks been doing so well? Well, not just defensive, but they pay a nice dividend stream and the yields are compelling. I would say that actually you want to start between now, I'd say in the end of June, I think this is going to be the window where people start to recognize the recessions here and it's not being recognized yet, which is why the bond market's been getting smoked. It's not recognized yet. And in recessions, inflation comes down. There's never been a recession where inflation didn't come down, even the three in the stagflation periods of the 1970s. Inflation comes down. I think there's a lot of people that just don't believe it because they're looking at what's happening in China with the lockdowns. They're seeing another leg with the European import ban on Russian oil. So they're looking at all this stuff. But inflation is very complex and there's moving pieces. I think that there's going to be a big window here to extend duration in the bond market just by the 30-year or the zero-coupon bond. I think there will be a nice, if you have a 12-month view, a nice opportunity. It doesn't have to be today, but I'd say between now and July, it's going to be very evident that the Fed is done, the recession is coming, and that people are going to readjust towards the Treasury market. So I want to get ahead of that. We have a little saying, or at least I do, we get asked the question all the time, kind of what Guy just asked you, whether it be on our show or whether it be just people that we are speaking to about markets. What are you doing here? Where are you putting money to work? When? And so to me, I actually am very much in your camp on the timing and especially about what the Fed will do. And Guy's made this point on our pod many times is that you might see a flight to swallow. There's a whole host of things that might cause treasury yields to go lower despite what the Fed has been saying about inflation. And I keep saying Qs and twos. I want to buy the QQQ when it's down about 30 percent from those highs and we're not there yet and i want to buy twos or just treasuries in general to your point because i do think that they top out at lower levels than they have let's see what the 10-year can do whether it can break that 2018 level listen we really appreciate your time i just wanted to get one more in here though david so what are some things that you think could turn the market on a dime a lot of investors over the last, let's say, since the financial crisis and the advent of QE, it was buy the dip. That was the mantra. There was a Fed put. Let's just say, assuming that we've already covered the Fed and there's not a whole host of things that they can do right now, what are some tape bombs that you think could have the market screaming the way it did yesterday on Wednesday, but maybe for some decent fundamental reasons? Is it something geopolitical out of Russia and Ukraine? Is there something in China? Are there a couple of things that are on your radar that could make you get incrementally less bearish well yeah nothing geopolitical it would be inflation this is where i'm tempted at some point to start thinking about that because nobody wants to believe it we've had back-to-back months of the core pc deflator actually to the second decimal place coming in below 0.3 percent nobody wants to believe it nobody wants to believe that new car prices have leveled off that used car prices are going down no one wants to believe that we have the biggest rental boom construction wise in the u.s since the mid-1970s, that there's a possibility here of some very significant rental disinflation. That's 30% of the index. So if we started to see a break in the inflation cycle and psychology, it's going to be very bullish, obviously very bullish for treasuries, but it's going to be very bullish for the stock market, primarily because it's going to cause the Fed to go to the sidelines. So at least you've eliminated the negative liquidity backdrop for the stock market. I don't think that it prevents the recession from happening, but it certainly prevents it from being extended. So the most important thing, there's no kumbaya moment in Russia, Ukraine, China, 
who knows? I think we can go crazy trying to forecast exogenous shocks and how that's going to influence our portfolio. I wouldn't do that. I would say that the key for me turning bullish is to see a real break on the inflation side. And by the way, I think that all this is going to coincide. I think we're going to get the 35, 3600 on the S&P. That's where I think we're probably, that's where I start to get very interested. It's around that time, I think that the recession call is going to become much more consensus, which would be great time for me to start turning bullish. By the way, I'm not going to time it, but I'm sensing that could be sometime in the fall. But the key is going to be the break in the inflation cycle. David, I appreciate that. Listen, folks, you might not like what you heard, but Rosie does extraordinarily thoughtful, non-dogmatic work. And that's really important. He's not one of these always bearish, always bullish guys. He just sees what's in front of him and he lays it out there. And I think he did an extraordinarily job. And Dan and I are thrilled that you joined us here on the tape. Well, thanks for the invite, guys. I really appreciate the time. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.